so welcome to the fourth step of the path, that of wise action. And today's session will be like the others. We'll have a chance to explore this topic. This is the beginning of the month on it. And then there will also be a chance for you to talk with each other about it. And you all know me, but I'm not sure if everyone knows Eileen, who is also one of the other mentors and has been mentoring in this program for a number of years. Um, and so it's uh, nice to have two of us today and have a chance to go teach. I've known Eileen for a long time, so it should be fun. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to say as an introduction? No? Okay. Yeah. Nice to see all of you here. Um, very good. Well, we're now getting into the heart of the sila steps of the path, the ones that are about ethical conduct. And so um, this is a chance for us to really understand better what it is that's meant by this idea of ethics. You know, we have carry in all kinds of ideas from maybe our past. So I hope maybe we'll just start today with an open mind about what wise action might be and what that means in terms of doing our practice and cultivating our hearts, not just do's and don'ts. So maybe um, just before we start the meditation, I'm sorry this is cutting in and out a bit. I'm still learning. I think this thing is actually a little loose. (laughs) Anyway, um, are there any questions or things that were brought up through working on wise speech that you wanted to... Uh, say before we move on. And I know we're not done with wise speech. That one goes on for a long time. In our <laughs> but just if there was anything left hanging. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering about one thing that I was really struggling with and I'm still struggling with is the when the possible choices that you that one has to make or I have had to make about in situations where I feel like my decision about why speech is if I is like almost between me and somebody else like almost between like protecting me or taking care of me or even other people, but that might be hurting somebody else. The intention is not to hurt somebody else, but it may hurt somebody else. And um, that's been a tricky one. Like I just feel, you know, I don't, I mean, it's confusing and I haven't figured it out. That's really yeah. what you to say about. Yeah, that's a big aspect of ethics, right? Because we're told it means non-harming, but then we get tangled up into whether or not this is more harm or less harm, or we get onto the tally sheet about more here, less there. So I think, I hope what we're going to talk about today might address some of this a little bit in terms of how to hold these um, teachings and these teachings on how to act in our heart and our mind in kind of a holistic way that allows our natural empathy and wisdom to come forth. You know, how can we prepare our mind to be able to meet situations in a way that's the best for everyone? 
while acknowledging that um, until we're arahants or fully awakened beings, we do cause harm. We do, because we have delusion. Well, and, and also so, other people do, right? Like it's like yes, you know, it's and like, how we so hold how other people's you... harm is a big issue. It's actually something Eileen will be addressing. Is that we often get in trouble, maybe more when we're reacting to what we see externally. So this is a great question, in other words. I'm not at all putting off your question. I'm saying probably most of today will be relevant for this question, so I'm so glad it came up. Yeah, I hope. I hope hope we're doing our job. All right, very good. Well, did you want to add anything? No. Okay. Great. Well, then let's go ahead and meditate, shall we? And just letting ourselves settle in a bit. So finding a a posture that's comfortable for you, but also upright, balanced. Maybe closing your eyes and letting your attention come inward a bit. just to settle in, perhaps tuning into the spot where you're sitting, your seat against the chair or the cushion and your legs or your feet against the floor. So a real feeling of groundedness, of solidity of where you're sitting. Maybe letting go a bit into that support. You can feel the way the body relaxes a little bit when it knows it has that foundation. And then softening. Allowing ourselves to bring some softness to our presence. So literally softening the muscles of the face, softening the expression on the face. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Maybe even relaxing inside the head, relaxing the imaginary thinking muscle, just softening the mind a bit. And down through the throat and the shoulders. Perhaps on the exhale, just releasing any tension that is ready to let go. Down through the arms and hands. Letting the 
palms feel open. down into the chest, the heart and lungs, inviting ease through the torso. Maybe letting the rib cage be soft. down into the belly area. Often a place with some tension. So just maybe letting the belly be kind of round or sinking down farther into the abdomen. Also softening the muscles of the low back. joints and groin muscles, sinking a little farther into the foundation where you're sitting. And down through the legs, the knees, just letting go of a sense of bracing the legs. And softening the ankles and the feet. And just as we invite ease through the body, we can encourage the mind to be easeful with whatever's happening. However the body is right now is fine. There are things in the mind, thoughts or emotions, it's okay. You can feel at ease with just being here with this.
it's helpful, we can let the mind settle on to the breath, the sensations of the breathing. Maybe feeling the way the breath flows through the entire body. Your breath energy maybe moves even into the arms and the legs. It's a way in which it unifies through the body. A certain wholeness to our body and our experience. When we just include everything
as we continue to sit in this very open and upright way. For some people, there can be a sense of a connection to the word integrity. It might be interesting to see for yourself what dropping in that word does to your meditation. What is it like to sit with integrity? Integrity to this moment, just as it is with the body and the mind.
Okay, so over this next month, we're moving to the step of wise action. You can see from the way the path goes that wise speech was singled out as its own step. And so I'm guessing that after practicing it for a month, you know why that's the case. Um, it is a real challenge and needs, you know, needs attention devoted to it. So wise action is just a continuation of the parts of the path that connect to sila, or ethical conduct, and it covers other areas besides speech. So specifically, in a technical sense, it covers uh, refraining from killing, not taking what is not given, and not committing sexual misconduct. That's the three major areas. But what I hope we'll highlight today is that um, this is actually more interesting than it sounds. It's, um, it can be uh, the subtleties of these different ways of acting can be brought out and used to enrich our practice and to really um, help us understand how to cultivate our hearts when we notice our own minds doing actions like this or ones that are related in some way. So we, were, we wanted to frame the topic today uh, of wise action in terms of the word that I dropped into the meditation in terms of integrity, um, hoping that that may be a little bit different, have a different sense to it than ethical conduct or certainly words like morality which don't always sit as well. There's a lot to the quality of integrity, but it does, of course, have a lot to do with ethical conduct. So my talk is going to explore integrity in terms of the um, the three actions that are pertinent to this step that I just mentioned a moment ago, and also the associated intentions and mind states. So kind of exploring what integrity is. And then... Um, Eileen is going to talk about integrity, bringing in more of its heart quality and its quality as a path of practice, although I have the feeling that we're kind of both going to touch on some difference in the relevant aspects of those. So it's useful as we start contemplating wise action to briefly revisit uh, another prior step, which is that of wise intention, because intentions precede actions. You know, before you do something, something was going on in the mind. You may not have seen it, but there was something going on there. So there's some, certainly some motivation behind what we do, even if we're not connected to that in a given moment. So a little pop quiz is, what are the three wise intentions? Can't hear very well. Can't hear very well? Okay. I was trying to get it a little bit away from my mouth because it was sounding a little bit too loud before. I'll try to speak up a bit also. So pop quiz, you've now had a few minutes to, a few seconds to think about it. What are the three wise intentions? Even if you know one, that's good enough. Yeah. I just peeked at my notes, so. <laughs> you want me to just do one? Yeah. Okay, um, renunciation. Renunciation, great. That is one of them. 
What are the other two? Somebody else for another one. Non-ill will. Non-ill will. Very good. And the last one. It's related to non-ill will. Compassion. Compassion, yeah, or non-cruelty. Perfect. Yeah. So um, you may have seen, of course, from exploring those, that even within those, there's quite a lot of variation. So I wanted to bring in three terms that Ajahn Suchito uses for these three wise intentions, which are interesting. They, um, he calls them harmlessness, gentleness, and simplicity of needs. So harmlessness is non-ill will. It's the wish not to separate from other beings, not to have you know, uh, unwholesome thoughts or do unwholesome things uh, related to them. So it's related to metta. And then gentleness is uh, non-cruelty. So it's related to compassion. So being gentle, not wanting to cause any pain or harm, or if somebody is in a situation of... Uh, compromised integrity, shall we say, not um, further inflicting harm. You know, when we say it this way, we think, oh, I wouldn't want to do that at all. But there are times when people are in a weak or wounded state and we give them another kick. And it's um, not easy to see that in our minds. But that's what cruelty is about. And then simplicity of needs is, of course, related to renunciation or letting go. And it's, it's useful to note that simplicity of needs doesn't say no needs. It doesn't say that you don't have needs. But it can be very useful to reflect on just how simple our needs really are. As far as what we actually really need, um, it's pretty related to food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. That's the basics of those. Now, our ego may have other ideas. We might not like the idea that, you know, if we were to lose our job, we might have to move to a simpler living situation or something like that. But it might still meet our, our needs in, in a simple way. So these are good practices. So the idea is that with these as motivations, harmlessness, gentleness, and simplicity of needs, then the actions that we perform from those will be, in some ways, skillful and conducive to the path. Not to say that it's easy, though. This is also from Ajahn Suchito. Now, these attitudes, meaning those three things, aren't difficult to understand, but the problem is that they are not visited. We're not encouraged to visit them often enough. We forget. We think of getting things done as being more important than being harmless. Yeah? We've all slipped into this mindset of, you know, I have to get something done. Um, and whether that's, you know, that next email you have to send off or something larger, a chunk of work you need to do in your life, um, we have a way of somehow prioritizing that above how we do it. And, you know, and then we cause some harm by pushing ourselves or pushing others or some such, um, and, you know, we need to consider our intentions in doing things, because that has a lot of impact on the quality of the experience while it's happening, and also the quality of the result that we get. Okay, so recalling that wise action concerns these three main areas, 
refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. Uh, if you've been around Buddhism for a while, you may recognize those as the first three of the five lay precepts. So this is related to you know, our practice of how we act in the world. Um, but there's a lot to these. So I want to now explore um, what areas of life these three really touch into. So a few months ago, I was asked to rewrite the precepts in my own words and also to add some positive virtues that could be cultivated in addition to just showing restraint. Sometimes people are turned off by the fact that these are all about restraint and they would like to have something positive there. So um, I wanted to just share what I came up with for the first three of these. And then I'll talk through a little bit. And if you want, you might want to do this exercise yourself sometime this month. Okay, so here's my writing of them. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings and to continually deepen and refine my understanding of this training. May I grow in contentment, patience, and compassion. I undertake the training to refrain from stealing and to continually deepen and refine my understanding of this training. May I grow in contentment, equanimity, and generosity. I undertake the training to refrain from harming with my sexual energy and to continually deepen and refine my understanding of this training. May I grow in contentment, samadhi, and regard for others. So a few notes on that. Um, so one general way that I would like to hone the precepts is to add that phrase that I added to each one to encourage ever deeper reflection and understanding. And this is because ethics is a path. I won't talk too much about that. That's the second half. But it changes. You know, our understanding of ethics changes. Is anybody's understanding of ethics now not different than it was when you were six years old? Of course it is. You have a much greater capacity to understand nuance. So um, it can be that, you know, especially, um, you know, we, we may read, for example, to abstain from killing living beings, and we think, well, geez, you know, I don't, I don't kill regularly. I don't certainly take any pleasure in it. I, you know, we assume that we've done that one because we don't kill people or animals or even insects. So, you know, check on that one. Um, but it can be interesting to deepen our reflection on them, not in order to get all tangled up in the challenges um, behind these precepts, but just to, you know, to understand better. So, for example, there's sort of, I found two dimensions to deepening our understanding. One of them is just to consider more subtle dimensions of these actions. So, um, yes, killing does mean rendering a body incapable of supporting life. That's one definition. But what about killing a person's aspirations or inquisitiveness or um, confidence? You know, we can kill certain things in other people by the way we meet them. Um, and this, you know, this can be a challenge if you're a parent, for example, or if you're a mentor or a boss, you know, how do you not kill things um, in the people that you have some power over, frankly? Um, 
this can be a challenge, you know, depending on the way they're behaving sometimes. In the case of stealing, um, you know, we may not literally be stealing things for our, you know, to gain for our acquisitiveness. We may not even steal the pens and paper from work, although that's a sort of a classic one. But what about um, taking a lot of someone's time or attention uh, when they didn't necessarily give that? Um, so just having some care around how we use other people in our lives, if you will. And of course, this doesn't say never go and spend four hours talking to your friend about something. That time may have been totally given and welcome. Um, but there can be cases where we're imposing in a certain way and just being aware of that energy in ourselves, the energy to have that. I guess lying would go in the realm of skillful speech, but just another area where I've examined in myself, you know, maybe I don't, at least not consciously, blatantly lie about things. But what about the numerous ways that I lie to myself through delusion that I, you know, that I still have? So ways in which there may be um, difficulty coming from that. So all, none of these are intended to make us feel even worse about ourselves. <laughs> um, they're really intended to um, help us see that these energies, uh, you know, to give us a standard to measure our mind against. You know, if we look really carefully, to what degree am I really not taking anything that wasn't given, not killing anything, not um, harming in any way with my sexual energy? So that's one. And then another dimension of deepening our reflection of these practices is to consider, uh, I call it considering the complexity of karma, of karma. And so understanding that the big picture is really very big and um, my actions are part of something much bigger. So for example, regarding the first precept of not killing, um, we are indirectly participating in killing if we pay our taxes because a fairly large amount of tax revenue is allocated to the military. So I don't like that. I don't really want to be supporting war. But And so if I really felt strongly, I could choose not to pay my taxes. And that has other consequences, you know. Uh, the great thing about Buddhism is that it actually doesn't have a lot to say about how you should or shouldn't be on a big societal systemic level. Why? Because it's complicated. And we really, um, I find that when I reflect on this bigger level, there's a certain, first of all, simplification. There's a pulling back to, okay, what can I do that I know is just, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to feel like I've acted with integrity even if the larger consequences, you know, I don't know. Um, so there's a simplification that comes through this reflection and also a softening. You know, it's really hard to do an action that on the huge grand scale is totally pure uh, if you try to include all of that. So that's also very helpful for softening judgmentalism um, and being clearer that my path is something that I walk through the world as well as I can, and that's what other people are doing too. It's an interesting question, though, sometimes to reflect. You know, we're not actually responsible for the behavior of others. Um, that's part of this simplification, is the realization that, yes, 
I chose to pay my taxes so that I could be a functioning citizen in society, you know, so I can do other things. And if somebody else allocates that money and sends it off to kill people in the Middle East, that's actually not my responsibility. That was their choice. They live with that. So starting to have a sense of what the realm of ethics is that we're operating in can help reduce suffering. Remember, that's the aim. <laughs> it's to reduce suffering, to find a way to live without struggle. To find a way to live without struggle. That's a lot of what this is. This part of the path is about. And it's both how we do things in the world and our attitude behind them. So for me, reflecting on the complexities and subtleties like this has led to loosening some of the tightness that we can get around the precepts around these ideas of what we should and shouldn't do. We, we, we want that to be a sense of integrity and strength, but not tightness. It's like the difference between sitting up straight and having a comfortable, erect posture and being really tight and having a bolt upright back. You know how it's like to try to sit for half an hour with that. It doesn't work. Okay, so um, as for the positive virtues that I added, I won't say as much about this um, but just to notice, I'll read them again. For killing, these were per- these were personal things, by the way, that I've seen in my practice. You know, what mind states are helpful for me? Like, what mind states are not compatible with killing? Contentment, patience, and compassion. And for stealing, contentment, equanimity, and generosity. And for sexual misconduct, contentment, samadhi, which means concentration, and regard for others. And they all grow, they all kind of go from less active to more active. You know, the one at the end of the list, there's something you can actually do, like compassion or generosity or respect, regard for others. And the others are more internal. Um, but there's a certain sense there that, um, you know, when we have these more wholesome mind states present, those are the ones that we're not interested in breaking the precepts. So one thing you can think about in the precepts is, okay, I'm not going to do that bad thing because somebody told me it's unwholesome. But we could also say, what has to be present in my mind such that those would not even be interesting? You know, if you are feeling generous, you are not going to steal. It's not compatible, (laughs) right? So it just doesn't work. And so there's... um, You know, there are ways in which we could see these as the cultivation of virtues. So I think the only one that I'm going to focus on is this, uh, just as this might be uh, unfamiliar, is this choice of samadhi as a positive virtue for the third precept of um, not committing sexual harm. So in my own practice, I just noticed this, is that um, there was a time in my practice when uh, samadhi was becoming very strong, and I was starting to, when I would sit, I would really start to get concentrated, and it was great, I love that feeling, and one day, just randomly, you know, I happened to be sitting and feeling the straightness and the energy starting to come in, and the sense of samadhi, and I had this lustful thought drift through my mind, and um, I was happened to particularly be feeling the straightness of my spine, which comes with concentration, and my spine collapsed, <laughs> you know, it was like it just softened, and I realized, oh, these are not compatible. You know, this is just not, it's a completely opposite energy. So it's literally true that, of course, that you know, a lot of lustful thinking will get in the way of concentration, for sure. 
Um, and then it's also true, the converse is also true, so that when we have a cultivation of samadhi, whether you know, of any kind of concentration in the practice, it actually um, reduces the mm, attachment and grabbiness there is around sex, actually. And, you know, we know this feeling. Sex has a lot of pleasure associated with it, like, you know, really good coffee, really good chocolate cake, sex, you know, they're all things, these are all in the sensual realm. Um, maybe those are not quite on the same scale, but, you know, there's they're all in that realm. And the, the pleasure that comes through uh, concentration, through the practice, through meditation, is of a much deeper nature. It's actually way better than any sensual pleasure. And as we touch into that, as we start to touch into that in our practice in any way, um, and everyone can do it to some degree, it starts to cut out the urgency and the grabbiness of the sense pleasure world. You don't have to worry that you're going to stop enjoying these things. Actually, in some ways, they get enriched because the unwholesome part of our enjoyment of sensual pleasures gets uh, softened out when we know there's something better. You know, you know, there's basically you know there's something better, and so um, we don't have to have that um, clinging, grasping, thirsting quality for the sense pleasures anymore. So, yeah, I think it really actually enriches that part of our life by taking away the that edge that we can have. And again, we might not think of ourselves as committing sexual misconduct regularly, but that little edge that's brought about by the, the strong power of sexual pleasure can lead us to have a little bit of hardness or um, unskillfulness in the way we pursue that. I also wanted to touch on that because it's a topic that's sometimes left out of Buddhism. And so, yes, there is ethics around sex and it relates to your meditation practice. Okay, so now we can circle back to this word, integrity. Um, I think I mean, there's a lot to integrity, but this word, which we may have an intuitive sense of it, but this word has... I think two important connotations for the practice. The first is that integrity includes a sense of strength. I mean, integrity of a physical object is literally means its strength. Like if a, um, you know, if a window doesn't have integrity, it's gonna it breaks. Or if a material doesn't have integrity, it will buckle under pressure. Right? We know that you know, whereas something a material that has integrity is is strong. So in the same way, when our heart has integrity, it won't buckle under pressure. You know, there is pressure. There are unwholesome forces in the world. There are various things that we run into um, that maybe encourage behavior that isn't going to be for our benefit or the benefit of others. And we need to develop some strength of heart to meet these things. Um, these unethical things in the world are not going to stop happening. Um, even when you become awakened, there's still that happening externally. But, um, you know, the mind will develop the strength such that it doesn't have any kind of a harmful emotion or thought as a reaction to meeting unskillful behavior. You know, as it is, we might react with judgment, anger, 
discouragement, whatever it is. Well, those are all responses that are not as strong as, say, reacting with compassion or generosity or equanimity. So the integrity that we build up in our heart to be able to stand um, and behave ethically. And then integrity, another connotation of it, is uh, the connotation of wholeness. This is the same as the word um, like integrated or integral. Um, There's a sense of completeness or um, everything included in the word integrity. And this also relates to our uh, the way that we stand and walk through the world, our uprightness in the world. There's a sense almost of alignment uh, when we are behaving uh, with integrity or with ethics. I'll put a little qualification on that because um, you have to develop a taste for this particular kind of alignment. If I just say alignment, um, it might sound like something that feels natural or easy to do which is true, but only if you cultivate it. Because as it is, all of us have some a few things about us that are maybe a little bit off, right? Um, takes us a while to get ourselves together on this path. And there, um, there is a sense when we're doing those things, I hope I'm not, yeah. There's a sense when we're doing those things, like a habitual behavior will feel comfortable because it's familiar. But if it's habitual and unwholesome, um, if we're if we're not just caught up in the familiarity of it, we will feel that there's a little sense of unalignment. And the first time that you do something that's say more skillful, like say there's somebody that you always snap at um, because they're just irritating, um, that may feel very perfectly good to you because it's habitual. It's what you always do. It's familiar. It's you. Um, but the one day when we decide, okay, I'm going to um, cultivate uh, generosity and openness, and you actually give that person a compliment or you smile at them, it may not feel exactly natural because it's not habitual, but there will be in it that genuine sense of alignment that comes with ethical conduct. And so if you can start to notice w- the times when you actually do do wholesome things, which is a lot of the time, um, you know, a lot of the time we do that during the day. So learning to get that feeling of, oh, this is that feeling of alignment as I do something that's really wholesome, you start to get a taste for it. And then we can develop that wholeness, not just wholesomeness, but wholeness in the body, the mind, and the heart, which is really a, a very deep feeling of ease and comfort, different than just following our habits. So when we when we do this, when we uh, in any way accomplish these um, wise actions, we are creating what is said to be good for self, good for others, and good for both. I really like that because it implies that we don't have to. We're not trying to choose. You know, is it me that's more important, or them that's more important? It's that we're looking for something that somehow includes everyone because everyone is important. We're part of all beings too. When we say I do this for the benefit of all beings, you're an all being. (laughs) And so it should be for your benefit too. And I'm again reminded of Ajahn Suchito who had as a mantra for a while this lovely phrase. He had, um, may this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. 
you know, that was his little mantra as he was trying to do things in the world, as he was trying to make decisions or bring forth actions. May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. So without over-idealizing that, you know, just knowing that we're doing our best at that, uh, it might be an interesting wish to carry forward this month as we explore our daily life actions and are sitting on the cushion. May this be for my welfare, the welfare of others, and for peace. Okay, so so as always, we want to now give you a chance to start to talk about this path factor. And why don't we go ahead and get into groups of either three or four. Um, and you can do that just with the folks around you. There are three mentors here. You guys might want to be a group together if you want. Um, so yeah, go ahead and get in groups and then we'll give you the question. Okay, so the first question which is one where you'll each get a chance to talk about it while the others listen, is describe briefly a time when you acted with integrity. So either doing something or refraining from something. Those are both actions of integrity. But it's not the focus is not so much on the story about that, so you can do that briefly. And focus more on what did it feel like in the body and what mind states and thoughts were present while you did that thing with integrity. So I'll read it again. Describe briefly a time when you acted with integrity, either doing something or refraining from something. What did this feel like in the body, and what mind states and thoughts were present? So a couple minutes each on that. Okay, so this winding up what you were saying. And then this um, second question is one where um, you'll just go around and each person can contribute something to the topic. And you don't need to contribute all of your ideas the first time because it's probably going to get around to you again. So each person just maybe offer one little thing and then you know, create something together by going around and around. And the question is, in what ways do your wise actions benefit others? So just some simple ideas of how your behaving with integrity is good for others. So you can go ahead and start going around the circle. Okay, so welcome back. And it would be great if um, some of you would like to share some of the highlights from what you talked about. Those were two great topics, and there certainly seems to be some um, energy around them. So, um, yeah, something for our collective wisdom. And there's uh, interesting in our group of four that one of the themes on what we had done um, was actually um, more towards wise speech and, and refraining from unwise speech. Okay, but yeah. But seeing that as an, as an action. It is an action to refrain, yeah. 
Isn't that great? Every time you don't do something unwholesome, you get credit for doing something wholesome. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> Think of all the unwholesome things you didn't do today. <laughs> yeah. Someone in our group brought up um, donations and generosity, and it kind of um, made me think about, like they were saying too, like um, giving the right amount versus keeping some back for yourself. Like we kind of seem to have that in our culture, and so I think that was a good yeah, in case people didn't hear, she said in making donations, giving the right amount instead of keeping some back for yourself, or conversely, instead of giving too much, like more than you can really afford. So giving the right amount, that's a practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think another thing that came up in our group that was I thought was kind of cool was just that acting with integrity. I'm extrapolating a little bit, but that acting with integrity that it breeds integrity with for other people. So it, mm -hmm. you know, it sort of propagates. Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. And yeah. nice people feel safe and supported. Mm -hmm. Also, if there are any questions at this point, and we still have the second half, but if there's anything that's come up up to now, either Eileen or I would be happy to talk about that. Yeah. I was kind of wondering about the balance that one has to strike when coming from a place of integrity which feels unmovable or the idea of strength but also if we're acting out of delusion in that stance and we might be thinking that this is a place of integrity like how do we balance that with the idea of like keeping an open mind to like evaluate our decisions and, and why we hold a stance did you want to say anything to that don't have to. Oh, question. Just this is big picture, taking a few steps back. But are we focusing on integrity today, kind of as a meta concept, kind of engulfing wise action, uh, 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 wise actions? Like taking a step back and say, okay, you know, don't kill. Don't take something that's not yours and avoid sexual misconduct. Take a step back and says, okay, this is integrity. And I'm just having a little bit of difficult time today kind of connecting perfectly <laughs> so I can see there's integrity in that. Uh, just I have a little different little time understanding how we are in a I'm having a tough time asking the question, frankly. <laughs> uh, but I was just, um, yeah, just not really seeing. I understand there's the connection there, but are we say, are we saying, okay, within these three, there's a whole world of other actions that may not necessarily mean, hey, we're going to kill somebody. It's 
like you said, kind of killing someone's confidence or something like that. So is, is today's message around integrity around actions as a whole? Okay, well, first of all, I don't want to totally um, step away from Roman's question, which right oh, before I, yours. Oh, no, but um, just to answer that, maybe in case maybe other people are asking or thinking it, I think the idea was that integrity is a different word choice. Wise action or morality or ethical conduct, or there's a, you know, a lot of these kinds of words. And we're trying to find words, as always, that work for us. At least that was part of my motivation in bringing in this other word. It wasn't to be confusing or to try to substitute or anything, but just to see if that resonates somehow for us and can help us evoke um, these states. How about for you? I think to, to speak to your question about, um, I think a lot of it is, for me, is to um, settle in the body and see if there's any agitation around what is coming up. And, and any kind of stress about something that we're, we're sitting with. And I think that the more we can do that and see the, the, the physicalness of, of what is in our mind and heart, um, then we can have a sense of, of um, you know, what, you know, if, there, if there's something else there that's causing the stress, this harm within ourselves before we speak or act. And that sensitivity gets developed over time. Okay, what is it about? Yeah, I think so. Could you give an example? Let's see. Um, this was thinking whether you were acting from true strength, from integrity, or acting from strong delusion. <laughs> Well, I think if if I'm acting from delusion, there usually will be some kickback, uh -huh. or there can be some kickback. Uh -huh. Or if there's not something immediate, there will be something still off within my system. Uh -huh. And you know, Kim was kind of pointing out to that sweet spot that you feel, you know, when things are just kind of right, and that's something that you can know uh, for yourself. So that's kind of what I look for is if a lot of times if, if I'll say something and there's been some kind of a reaction, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll stop and I'll, I'll try and reassess, you know, what, what actually is going on here. And that gets developed over time on what, we, what we're seeing through. Mm -hmm. But it's a marker. Mm -hmm. I'll just add one, just add one thing from the suttas. There's a teaching that the Buddha gives to his son. Um, about a mirror, and he he says that um, we should continually reflect on our actions, and we should consider if before we're doing something, we can consider is this going to be harmful or not, and if it seems like not, then it's fine to go ahead and do it. And then while we're doing it, we can notice this is what Eileen was pointing to: does it seem like something is off, or does it seem okay? If it seems okay, then you just keep you proceed, and then. But even then, afterwards, we could look back and say, well, did that actually have the effect that I intended? And if not, then again, there's a, an opportunity to look and see, well, you know, if, if the result was completely different than I intended, 
told me there was something I didn't see. And so we, it's sort of an iterative honing process over time. It's not like we got it right or we got it wrong and that's it. We'll never, you know, it's like you just sort of learn through trial and error over time. I heard that story about the mirror teaching on my very first retreat, and I didn't like it. <laughs> so now I teach about it because I've learned over time it's actually very profound teaching. And the first time I heard it, I thought, oh, geez, you know, who can evaluate their actions before, during, and after? This is ridiculous. Um, but I, I hadn't quite appreciated the depth of the teaching yet. Okay, well maybe we should take a 10 minute break, it's been a while, um, and then we'll come back and talk about some other aspects of this same topic. So I'll see you in 10 minutes. Okay. Okay. Can you hear me okay? okay. A little louder. A little bit louder? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Well, I kind of wanted to um, talk about uh, the precepts of the path of training, and then also the development of the heart quality. So I kind of want to zero in a little bit on, on, on the heart part of this. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says that the precepts are love. And, you know, refraining from not doing things that you don't feel good about. You know, and I've kind of found this to be um, true in my practice. The more I practice, the more I find that um, that intimacy in my in my life has grown. You know, my relationships. You know, I I have a sense of um, more harmony within my family, and and even more of a sense of self worth. You know, just by looking at these precepts and and, and investigating them and seeing. Where I where I close down, and um, so a lot of it had to do with my relationships, with with looking at these precepts. You know, I I had you know um, relationships with authority that would shut me down, or um, you know that there was something wrong with me, or um, or just the tangle that happens in, in social interaction. So what I like, but what I love about how the, the Buddha taught about looking at these precepts is, um, you know, on the way he relates to it. And Nisaru Biko um, speaks of the path in this way. He says the Buddha didn't say that if you break a precept, it's going to get you. And that, that to me, you know, really kind of hit home, you know, especially with, with how I acted toward myself if I break a precept, like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And um, and he points out that the Buddha really spoke about being free from um, finding the freedom from the stress and the suffering, and that is the aim, you know, not not to beat ourselves up or not to to, to um, you know to really look at our relationship with how we look at these precepts and how we enter into them. And he goes on to talk about how you know um, when he describes karma, you know, our intentional actions and then their results are what the karma is. And when we see ourselves and others as independent agents, then um, harm 
when I harm myself, it's when I break a precept. And when I harm others, it's when I make them break a precept. And that was an interesting way for me to look at that, that this other person is still an independent agent, but if an action I did caused them to uh, get angry or something like that, they still have their own agency, but it gives me that mirror reflection of what, what is going on in me, that what action did I take that ended up causing that harm. And he uses the image that um, that actions in our past, I mean, in our past generate seeds, and then our intentions generate seeds. So there's this field of these seeds out there of our actions. And that was another image that was helpful for me. Um, if I look at myself, if, if I've um, done an action in the past that caused harm, and I didn't deal with it. It's still kind of in my system. And and if I look at other people, they have this field of, of karma out there too, and we're interacting with each other. So that's where I, it's helpful for me to look at how interactions can be so complicated. You know, that, that um, something of the way a person looks at me could be something related to something, not even something I did but something that felt like something I did. And so um, to hold that you know, lightly as far as is, is what is going on in these interactions. And um, so that, that was really kind of helpful. And the, the thing that he, he talked about was that what the Buddha, the Buddha pointed to was that it's our present karma that is the key. So um, if we, we can develop ourselves so that we don't have to suffer with whatever's ripening in the field. So we don't even necessarily need to understand all that's getting played out. How do I meet with this particular moment? And um, that um, our capacity to meet that present moment grows over time when our mindfulness gets developed and some of these other qualities along the path. So, um, and in that present moment we can take we can take uh, action on what is skillful now. Let me give an example. I'm not sure. Um, if I look at, there was a, I, I parked my car um, on the block where I live. And when I parked it, I um, was kind of blocking the driveway a little bit. But it, I made this assessment that it was, there was still plenty of space for this person to get in and out. And um, I happened to have left it there for a long time. I didn't go out for a day or two. And uh, when I got back, there was a note on my car. And it was not a very pleasant note. But in that particular moment, my heart just felt the ache of this note. And I just felt compassion towards the state of mind that this triggered in this other person. And, and I was so struck by that change in me. It was this automatic response of this heart connection with this other person. And um, it, was, it was striking that I said, oh, okay, you know, I, I did an action that caused this to happen in this other person. And I won't do it again, for sure. But I also didn't go to the place where I felt like I, had, I, I was a bad person for doing this. And, um, 
And then I also didn't go to a place where I obsessed about, like, I've got to fix this. I've got to, I've got to make amends or do something. I noticed that was gone, too. I mean, it felt like it was complete in just recognizing that, okay, I just won't do that again. And if I step back and look at my action to even when I made the assessment to park there, what was going on in my mind? Because I, I noticed that I didn't want to block somebody from coming from coming out of the driveway. Um, I know it was late at night and there wasn't much parking on the street and, and I was tired, so my mindfulness wasn't as together. And also, I lived in a place previously that uh, was next to a church, and there were always people kind of squeezing in. They were late for church, and they always kind of squeezed in and blocked the, the driveway a little bit. And it didn't bother me. I always, you know, took a little extra care to leave the driveway. So that was probably playing into my assessment of how I parked. So it can get, you know, it can get pretty involved with how these actions happen. And um, or harm, you know, uh, on how somebody feels harm in a very different way than I would necessarily feel harm. And but it all um, so with so with 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 this example, you know, it, it's striking to me over time how the more I can meet this present moment experience of what is actually going on and work from here. Um, if, if I work as a chaplain and if I happen to connect with somebody and I feel some agitation with something I've said, I'll step back and investigate it a little bit more. So our investigation quality gets more developed as we, as we practice in, in assessing how to meet this particular moment in a skillful way. Um, and I think this kind of speaks a little bit to the question that, that you brought up a little bit, and and another aspect around that is um, when we feel like we need to close our heart and protect ourselves, um, it's it's really difficult, I find, to meet somebody else's um, anger. You know, it's, it's <coughs> that that energy. I mean, it's it's it it's not comfortable. And so a lot of the times that we feel like we need to close down is because things are uncomfortable. And instead of meeting things as they are, um, you know, we feel like we have to pull back. And I think that over time, you know, um, grow our, our capacity, the heart capacity to meet these experiences that are challenging um, grows over time. Our capacity for equanimity, you know, when something has been out of our, our control. Um, the you know in this in this field of karma too, you know how we how we meet our experience in this moment, um, we can actually uh, if we do it in a skillful unskillful way, we're actually watering some of those seeds in a negative way, so those grow as far as, you know, habits go. They're strengthening a particular habit. Like in the example I gave, you know, I know that I could be, um, if, I would, if I would stay with the fact that I had done something wrong and, and um, spent a lot of time worrying about that, like, you know, is this person going to, whatever, you know, um, I'd be watering that particular seed. 
where, you know, if I do something skillful, I made this mistake, I was honest that I made this mistake, and then you let it go. And, and that's a way to kind of clear up some of these things in our field, is that over time, that the more we refrain from doing these actions, they actually do soften and let go. Um, Ajahn Sutito says that harmlessness means turning away from the actions that cut off the ethical and empathic sense. So the heart feels, you know, when something is off. But how we assess that, you know, then we bring in the ethics on, on, um, on what that, on how we discern, you know, how to meet that particular moment. The um, he he goes on to say that um, staying whole and connected is a matter of relating to the head, body, and heart in a balanced way. You know that 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 sweet spot that um, um, Kim was speaking about. How we, we kind of know when we're more in alignment, and and if things are. It's just the way it is, like right now. We can just meet this particular moment. And it, the other thing about the field that was helpful to me is to looking at looking at it more as the conditions, and um, not being who we are. Um, in in the example of uh, the parking, you know, I I made a mistake, but it wasn't who I was. You know, I could let that mistake go. It didn't. I didn't have to make an identity around it. And it was more of a condition that caused this person harm. Uh, and I can change. I can change that in myself and meeting others. So, um, so this. I think in, in meeting what's uncomfortable it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of um, gentleness. You know, we get humbled, you know, you know, in making mistakes because it is a lot of trial and error in, in this practice. You know, um, you know, I had a relationship with this one person who, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times that I would have an exchange with her and it didn't go well and I'd go back and I'd reflect on it and I'd learn from it and the next time it would go well and then it would, it would not go well the next time and, I, and it was amazing how much I learned about what was going on in my own <coughs> mind and, and one thing that um, has freed me up a lot is the way the Buddha teaches about being free from um, the stress and the harm is that I don't, my, my freedom isn't dependent on what's happening um, with this other person. Uh, if I had no control over uh, this person's reaction, my freedom wasn't, if my freedom, if I was tied up into her needing to see me a particular way, then um, I get entangled where the freedom is. And, and it also keeps me from the obsessive part, like I have to fix it. If if I can know um, <coughs> that um, that I did the best I can and let it go, 
then the next time I meet this particular person, if I do, my heart's going to be in a completely contented and different place. And then that natural compassion can arise, like it did in the case when I saw this note. That became now my habit versus a habit of, okay, I did something wrong, I have to fix it. That was now the automatic response. And that was because I think I was in a contented place, a balanced place, and I felt the heart, felt this, this empathic you know, response, and it moved towards compassion instead of retreating and closing. So that's how I notice when I'm in the sweet spot or not, is, is how my system is, you know, the whole heart and mind. And using my thinking function in, in a discerning way versus trying to, you know, intellectually, you know, look at the precepts from an intellectual point, you know, I, that way. Versus, you know, I look at it more as a heart, heart way. Um, and switching my aim, you know, with, with, with around this, um, I forget. And I go back into the fix-it kind of mode. So I have to continually remember, oh, wait, I have to come back. And I, it's right in this particular moment that I have the opportunity to act in a different way and to let go. And the more I can do that, the more that when that remembering quality gets developed, then um, the aspiration, the practice, you know, that, that, um, that feedback, you know, when I really noticed in the moment that my heart just responded with compassion, that keeps me going on the path to, to, to do more, to find out other places where I get caught or entangled. So going back to what you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, it's about love. You know that um, um, we can rejoice with how the precepts actually protect us and and teach us how to meet others who uh, may not, you know, uh, are even looking at some of their actions. So that's what. Thank you. Do you want to <coughs> No, I think that was great. Okay. So we can go on to the small groups. Alright. So we can break into groups of three. Is that how we think? Yeah. We can get the groups on the floor. Yeah, if you can. Okay, so the first question is, in what ways do you see ethics as a path rather than a set of rules? And so maybe each person could share just from their own experience uh, a little bit about this topic and we'll each, you know, we'll give you a couple minutes each on that. So in what ways do you see ethics as a path rather than a set of rules? How has that been in your life? So the first person can go ahead. Okay, and then the the second question to to consider is how does your relationship with the precepts change 
if instead of seeing them in the negative, like causing harm, you view them as a vehicle to develop yourself in wise, skillful restraint and care and understanding. So instead of seeing only the don't do this, you see it as in a way, or you don't see it as, oh, I don't want to cause harm, although that's a very good motivation. But you see it as, this is a chance to develop myself. You know, this is a chance to walk the path and increase my, uh, my wisdom, my care, my good intentions, etc. So how does your relationship with them change if you see them in this more positive light? And this can just be a, a group discussion, but make sure that everybody has a chance to say what they feel. Go ahead. And then this time we actually have a third question for you also, um, which is, it's a, sort of a follow-on. So if you view the precepts as a vehicle to develop yourself, how would that change how you respond to or view others who act unwisely? Yeah, so if you see these as a vehicle to develop yourself, how will that change how you respond to or view others who act unwisely? And again, you can have a discussion, but make sure everyone contributes. All right, so coming back to the group. Okay, so we felt like those were pretty juicy topics, so I'm curious... um, if you have anything to share, what emerged from your group discussions? Yeah. I think that how we view um, unskillful actions, and whether it's opportunities to do well or, or if it's a breaking of an ethical rule, um, regardless, it's just a really good reminder of how our views affect everything that we do. Yeah. Because both of those are views, and one might be more skillful than the other. Um, and they could change roles in that, or they could both be skillful at times, or they could, it's likely that they're not both unskillful. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of a reminder of how that filters everything before we do it. Thank you. Yeah, just kind of on that note, like I often think like views, so much of our views come into our relationship to ethics, huge. And like how much of our views are culturally conditioned. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I really hold because a lot of times when I think somebody's like, I can think something is so wrong, um, like killing a spider and other people have just such a different relationship to it, maybe based on like their their karma, their conditioning growing up and where they grew up. And I just kind of, that's all, that's, yeah. And I think there's a lot of ethics in that, how we meet the other person and like hold their views with kindness because we don't want to shame people or just because my conditioning says that this is wrong doesn't actually mean that it's wrong, you know. not in an absolute sense, but exactly. it might not be conducive to getting the fruits of the path. So we can understand that about others. But you're right, holding yeah. that. And there's, yeah. I guess, there's um, wisdom, like in how, <coughs> yeah, like how I relate to that. Because just because I can't, I don't have control. It's kind of what you guys were pointing to. I don't have control over somebody else's actions. Mm-hmm. I do really believe there's a place for us to speak. 
and sometimes express our uh, yeah our relationship to somebody else's actions and how that's harm might be harmful to us or how that feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think that um, if we're acting, you know, being more ethical and having more freedom in our lives, that doesn't make us. We don't need to compare ourselves with others. And I think if we do, then we fall into, again, acting, breaking a precept of not, you know, we, it, it. that's not how the aim is. It, again, it's to find freedom within ourselves. I, I agree, and it can be so easily, it's, it's so easy to just, I mean, it's so human to think that I'm right. <laughs> so there's comparing in that, even like it's very subtle comparing now. Yeah. yeah, and that's where more discerning needs to yeah, kind of yeah. come in. Yeah, because that's agitating. Yeah. And this uh, business about looking at others, you know, in my own growth, and, and this isn't the only way I've tried to improve, you know, the person that I am today. And I've I've noticed in the last many years now that every time I grow a little bit. I have this kind of unconscious belief that everybody on the planet has just grown with me, right? And my expectation when I don't think about it is that everybody knows what I know, right? And everybody's in the same playing field as I am. And I didn't know I thought that way for a really long time, and I couldn't realize, understand why people weren't meeting me where I was. And I realized, I'm like, two years ago, I wouldn't have met me where I was, right? And that I'm the one that's growing, and I have some just, I don't know why, just this idea that everybody has the same knowledge, the same integrity, the same lesson plan, the same life plan, you know, and it's just, I don't need, like I said, I never even thought about it for so many years, and now I just see it differently. And I was talking with my group, it's like, you know, the, 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 the well-known phrase, you know, the people, people know better, they'll do better. Mm. And I need to stop with the expectation that they know better. Or if there are any lingering questions at this point, also. Yeah. I'll just say that, you know, I find it really helpful to look at um, the precepts as a path rather than a set of rules. Um, because rules are really either meant to be followed or broken. There's not a whole lot of like, you know, in between. And um, that can lead to a lot of like guilt and shame, you know, if we apply that to how we act in our lives. And um, I, I really love the, the visual of a path, you know, a long straight road, trees on each side, and, you know, you're, you're looking down the road and it's like, this is the journey we're on, and, and we can allow ourselves to um, explore and see what these precepts mean to me, because my experience is different than your experience, and so how can we make a rule about something when we all have a different experience in our lives? And then just looking at the precepts, and instead of like being like, I can't do this, I can't do that, that's like a blessing. I mean, not stealing has like... 
I don't have to like be paranoid that I'm going to get caught shoplifting anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, not not harming, not um, um, you know, being wise with my sexuality. These are these are things that are like a weight has been lifted. It's not a burden. It's the complete opposite in my experience. Yeah. Look at how light and free monastics look, and they live under hundreds of training rules. <laughs> but in, and we think, oh, that would be so hard, but they always look so happy. <laughs> they must know something about what you said. <laughs> I think they also, though, look at it as an absolute, too. If I do this, harm will happen. So they really take them on you know, seriously, but then also hold it as a path of training. You know, they kind of have the boat. It's an interesting and balance. having the both kind of helps us with with the shame part that we're, it's a training, you know. That that it, it's a very important to, to see it as a training. I like. Uh what you just said about that too because it kind of makes me think about the word rule and it can be seen as the word rule can be interpreted as like a law that's broken um, but it can also be seen as just um, set consequences and you know there's like rules of physics and um, if you drop something it's going to fall and that's just the natural order and consequence of things and um and that can be really easily confused with like the other English interpretation of the word rule. Um, and it just comes right back to right view and the mundane right view of the fact that our, our volitional actions have consequences and those born out of wholesome intentions release us from suffering and those born out of unwholesome intentions lead to more suffering. And so, it doesn't have to you know, cause anything more. It's just, just simply a rule. When you do something, this, this is what follows. Yeah, nicely put. Um, and but but I think we have to remember that we have a relationship with other types of rules in our lives that gets you know entangled with how we're looking at precepts. You know, with with um, our how we've related how authority issues and and so it it puts a flavor on. On rules in some way, and and so we have to be gentle with that as well. Yeah. That's why it's kind of nice to see it in both ways, yeah. and sometimes way heavy on, on one side, and then where they can kind of then merge. Kristen? Um, I just thought about how you said, uh, like your rendition of the precepts, how you mentioned continuing to reflect on them and have a deeper understanding of what that means to you. And that felt more of like a path to me rather than a rule. Yeah, and these are intended to be, I think, the word is used in Buddhism is onward leading. And, you know, when we do things that are on the path, then the nature of them is to be onward leading and we learn something and then from that we can do something that we couldn't do before and in doing that we learn something new and 
it keeps going. It's one of the beautiful things about the path that I've learned to have a lot of faith in over time is that it is always onward leading. It never, you don't ever get to a dead end um, if it's the path. The only thing that leads to dead ends are delusions. One of the things that's been helpful for me too is is um, my interpretation of the word rules has shifted to mean like agreements, and it's always to be reassessed. And so, for example, what I mean when I'm working with the precepts, and we didn't talk much about the fifth precept, but that's one of them about intoxication. And so there was clear cut, like I wanted, I chose that I wanted to be. Uh, to stop using alcohol or drugs or anything like that. So that seemed pretty black and white, and that was a practice of doing that. But then it was like, okay, so where is this development on this path with intoxications? Okay, so what is my relationship with social media? Or was what is my relationship with, um, you know, dating? Or what, so how is that intoxifying me? And then it's with each of these precepts, I'm always reassessing the agreements. So is this, is this towards wholesomeness? Is this towards freedom? Or is this? And so then it just develops on this path of just moving forward and out of delusion. Mm-hmm. That's what's been something that came up for me right now. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Maybe we should um, just sit for a few minutes to kind of settle in and let ourselves absorb some of what we've learned, and then we'll wind up. beginning into wise action and um, I hope it's a fruitful month for you you'll be meeting with your mentor and so forth and then the wise livelihood session is on February 10th so see you back then and have a great month